Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Friday, November the 20th. Today on the podcast, we'll discuss interim results that look promising when it comes to a study involving COVID tests for returning air travelers at Pearson International Airport. And Frank Scarpetti, the mayor of Markham, joined the show to discuss why York Region feels they should not be lumped in with Toronto and Peel if further restrictions are announced this afternoon. Great to talk again, Kelly. Yeah, I wish it was under uh, better circumstances, but here we are. We're in the midst of a second wave. Uh, You are arguing, along with um, other experts and other uh, authorities in York Region, that Premier Ford should leave you where you are. You moved into the red zone on Monday. What's your major part of uh, your reasoning for not following along with uh, Peel in Toronto? Sure. So just just to start off, this was a recommendation from uh, Dr. Kerji, our medical officer of health in in York Region. And there were two aspects to this, Kelly. One were the the factors that we we had to consider. And secondly, uh, some conditions that we attached to that request. So when you take a look at the factors, you know, we, we just got into the red control zone on Monday. Uh, we're saying, for all intents and purposes, uh, stage two uh, uh, restrictions have uh, been typically positive uh, when we went into that phase. Uh, we're saying just because we got into it on Monday, let's give it a bit more time uh, for those measures to truly uh, take effect. Health inspectors have been out in the field. They're seeing the majority of businesses continue to comply with, with the protocols. And here's the other important aspect of this. Uh, the, the medical officer of health was in touch with all three of our local hospitals, the CEOs. And right now, right now, they're managing the caseload that they have because of COVID-19. Now, that's a major factor for me. Uh, if that begins to, to shift and to change and there's uh, extraordinary demands uh, put on them, then, then obviously we, we'd have to reconsider that whole approach. So that's what those were the factors. And then we also attached some conditions to that request. Okay, well, let me let's stop for a second. I want to go back for a second. Your hospital, uh, when when asked uh, how they were doing, they said they're managing their COVID patients. What's the threshold that um, your uh, chief medical of, of health in in York has put on uh, when they're not managing anymore, when it becomes too intense? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things here. You, you recall in the first, uh, the first wave, uh, you know, elective surgery was basically eliminated and other procedures were eliminated. And, and that caused a lot of concern for people that were waiting for surgeries, uh, you know, sometimes dealing obviously with pain, others uh, making sure that whatever uh, their condition was, was, was going to be corrected either through surgery or, or extensive treatment. So obviously there was a greater capacity and we needed it back then because the, the cases and the, the number of people that were going into ICU. Right now, you know, in, in all of York region, there's 52 uh, people that are hospitalized that are not in the ICU. And for uh, all of York region, there's eight people in, in ICU. I don't dismiss those uh, mm. you know, the pressures that that brings. But right now, the hospitals have gone back to, and they're pretty well at the pre-COVID level, of doing all their other procedures. So once the system really gets to be to a point where not only are the hospitalizations increasing and ICU increasing, but we have to then put off other procedures, I think, uh, you know, we're going to get those alarm bells going off when when, uh, the CEOs uh, 
talk to us. And, and really, it's not Dr. Kurji's decision in that sense of, of what the capacity is. We, we listen to the hospitals. Right. And and that really is a stark difference when you talk about eight people in York in ICU compared to, you know, hundreds in Toronto. That's that's a huge difference. I can see why you don't want to be lumped in with Toronto and with Peel into further restrictions. Let's talk about the measures that you've implemented in York and how confident you are that they're going to result in a drop of COVID cases. Well, first of all, um, you know, we're, we're, I was pleased to see the additional measures uh, just a, a week ago or so um, that, that put further restrictions on restaurants, uh, allowing them to reopen and gyms. And if you recall, actually, we chatted back in the summer and I was asking for those additional measures for restaurants and gyms. Why? Uh, because you're three times more likely to catch COVID-19 when you're indoors for a prolonged period of time. So I think these additional measures, uh, I've been calling for them for some time, was happy to see them in place. Again, let's see, uh, let's see how they work. I think the important aspect right now, uh, while we did ask to be left out of the, uh, the lockdown zone, we are asking for additional uh, measures as they pertain to large retailers. The large like box retail, well, the large, you know, all, all the names, large box mm-hmm. retailers. I, I don't want to call anybody out because I, I'm sure, sure your Costco's, the, your Walmart's, yeah, your, yeah, all of them, all of them. And, and uh, we want to make sure that they are restricting uh, the capacity of their stores. We've certainly seen some pictures, heard some stories from representatives around the regional council table saying, you know, people are tripping over each other in some of these retail uh, stores. That, that's got to stop. They have to restrict the capacity of those so that people can be at a minimum two meters apart. Understanding, yeah, you may have to pass someone in an aisle and do those types of things, but generally speaking, you've left enough space. Uh, the same with shopping malls. Other measures, again, restaurants and, and small businesses, you know, they, they, they know what they've had to do. And they look to some of these uh, larger establishments and say, well, why am I having to do all of this? And, and look at what's happening over there. And they have a very valid point. So we need further restrictions. The other loophole that has to be closed is the fact that banquet halls, if they're holding a wedding ceremony or any kind of religious ceremony, they were using the 30% of, of their capacity. And yeah. if that... Uh, you know, if they were hosting a, a dinner, the maximum they would be allowed to have is 50 people. Yet when it when it switched over to a ceremony, there there was a loophole there, and obviously putting way too many people in in one room again and for a prolonged period of time. Give us an example of how many people could be in a room during a ceremony. Well, obviously, it obviously depends on the. I mean, some of these banquet halls, the you know, there's, we call them banquet halls. In many respects, they're convention centers. You know, typically you could fit a thousand, a thousand people in there, uh, and and more if it's theater style. So again, it all depends on the size of the room. But obviously, at thirty percent capacity, that allows you way more people than fifty people. So it didn't make sense that if you're having a a function there, a dinner, you're capped at fifty. But hey, have a wedding ceremony, and and you'd be way above that. So that loophole and the loophole. Has- I'm guessing, Frank, just to interrupt. The loophole loophole would be you have the wedding ceremony followed by the dinner, and all those people can stick around and eat together. Right. Well, yeah, and even if they didn't, just the fact that you're bringing that many people into one place, and it's not just a five minute uh, 
in and out, right? It's, it's a prolonged period of time again. Let me ask you about this. York Region declaring another wedding-related outbreak after nine confirmed cases and seven probable COVID cases were linked to events in the Township of King. And that's just days after a different outbreak with 17 confirmed cases linked to two weddings in the region that were attended by many of the same guests. What will you do about weddings? I mean, I understand you want to limit the number of people allowed in, but is there ever has there been any talk about, you know, just saying weddings beyond the officiant, you know, a couple of witnesses in the bride and groom are, are not on right now during this pandemic. Right. So again, it, 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 I think it really does depend on, on the circumstances. Uh, if, if you're indoors, uh, that definitely has to be based on, on the room. And, and again, uh, you know, understanding that you can't have, uh, 150, 200, 300 people, whatever the case may be. Uh, so understanding that, yeah, you're going to have to curtail what you may have thought uh, or planned on one day was going to be uh, your wedding ceremony. And then obviously, if you're you're outside, again, depending on where you are and you have the ability to have uh, two meter plus distancing, it really depends on the circumstances. I guess the, the other point um, that, that we made in the letter is that we're also going to up our game on enforcement. We have to. I mean, we've tried education. We've tried all of the social media. It's, we, and by the way, we'll continue to do that. But I think what's critically important is that when we have, you know, when restaurants are doing everything they can to comply and more, and then, you know, someone either in the restaurant industry or in another industry just turns their back to all the protocols, well, we can't let that happen. It's not fair to the businesses that are complying. And, and to be honest with you, they're putting the public at risk. So in the letter, we made a commitment to enhance our, our enforcement. And in the, in the, in the uh, case, I believe, in King City, there actually were uh, charges laid. But we have to be doing more of that. Uh, you know, uh, we're at past the point of saying please and, and uh, cute little cartoon ads. I mean, they're, they're, they're effective to one point, uh, to a point, rather. But we also have to make sure that we, we do enforce and, and make examples of those that just turn their back on this stuff. We don't want to be Toronto. We don't want to be Peel. No one does. And they, and they don't want to be. But when you see the number of cases per 100,000 in York region hovering around, you know, 86 per 100,000 in Toronto, it's, it's well north of 100 uh, incidents per 100,000. A positivity rate in York region of 6%. You're looking at, at sometimes 18, almost 20% in, in some parts of, of Peel. I mean, obviously, there's a breakdown here in either communication. Uh, we have to get some of this information out in different languages. We have to stress how important this mm-hmm. is. At the end of the day, it's about public health, but it's also about preserving preserving the economy. And, and we it's all of our job to do that. Frank, do you really think there's a language barrier now? We're in this, uh, you know, eight months here. I think people know. People have, you know, have found people that speak uh, their language if they have a, if they're not fluent in English and and speak English and have communicated to them that you know we have to keep socially distanced. We have to keep up with our following public health guidelines. We can't um, just go on with our lives as normal. Are you prepared as well? Uh, to tell your bylaw officers that the time of, of warnings have ended, and is that something you'd like to li- that any listener listening in uh, Markham 
hears today that if you are found breaking the rules, there's no warning. You are going to be fined. So absolutely, that's part of our commitment. And, it, and by the way, it, it really is. And, and where we've they've, you know, initiated just to show our commitment, initiated a task force now, an enforcement task force, bringing together once again police, our municipal bylaw officers, so there can actually be a better coordination. Um, it's it's been happening. Charges have been laid, but but not to the same extent. And I'll be honest with you. We got to publicize it too. I mean, it's great that we clamp down on on the business or the violator. Name and shame. Uh, You're saying well, name and shame. No, we have. Yeah, well, you know what? It's about the responsibility that that we all have to each other. And getting back to your original question as well, absolutely, it's not just the language barrier. Let's face it. You know, not all, not everyone has the luxury of being able to work from home, and, and people sure. are making a decision to just continue to work. And sometimes even if they might think they're sick, they continue to work. So you, you, you noted at the beginning of this segment, as the GTA mayors, we have asked to have a greater support for workers who, who have to stay at home, who have to isolate. And, and then, you know, I, I, yeah, people at this point should know. But I'll tell you, Kelly, I go back to a project we had in Markham. We had big lit signs saying road closed up ahead because the bridge was out you'd be amazed at the number of cars and that was more than one sign you'd be amazed at the number of cars that just kept driving right to the end and in one case uh, we almost had a a big vehicle go uh, over the edge so like yeah it's we got to keep doing the education we got to keep doing the messaging but you're to your point time is up you know we can't put the stress on the healthcare system and at the end of the day we owe it for public safety. We, we owe everyone to do that for public safety. But I'll be honest with you, we owe this to the businesses, the businesses that yeah. have tried their damnedest to, to make sure that they're doing everything they can to keep their customers and staff safe. And I would argue uh, we also owe this to our frontline workers who we could not stop talking about at the beginning of this pandemic. Funnily enough, here we are in the second wave and things look even worse. And all of a sudden we forget that we need to make sure that we keep the numbers down for their own mental health, for their uh, sake, so that they don't burn out and so that we can all continue to get the medical care that we need when we need it. Frank, uh, I wish you the best of luck, but we'll we'll have to wait and see what Doug Ford has to say if you're going to be lumped in with Toronto and Peel today when further restrictions are announced. We've made this request because of where we are today. Obviously, if things change, we'll have to take a different approach. It's all up to us. It really is. It seems odd as we move into the second wave that we're even considering not requiring um, quarantine for air travelers. But this is based on a study that McMaster Health Labs conducted Uh, Joining us on the show is CEO Dr. John Gilmore. He's been on the show with us before. At the beginning, when you were just planning on launching this study, tell us a little bit about, refresh our memories, doctor, on on this study um, Uh, that that uh, took place in the airport. Yes, Kelly. We tested people arriving from international destinations in Terminal 1 on uh, the day they arrived right in the terminal, and then they took two test kits home with them. And uh, they then self-tested themselves on day seven and day 14. This is the only study of its type in the world that is looking at over 14 days. How do people 
uh, uh, go positive? Are they positive when they arrive? Uh, do they become positive by day seven or by day 14? And the results that we released this week are for the first half of the study, those uh, uh, international arriving passengers in the month of September. And we're still analyzing the data from the month of October, Kelly. Okay, so what did you learn from the data? The data uh, told us that about 1% of people coming into Canada through Tamil 1 at Pearson are positive for COVID-19. And we detected about 70% of those on the arrival test. So it was a total of just short of 90 people out of 8,500 who were positive. 70% 70% detected on the test at uh, day one, and then another just over 25% detected at day seven. And the number detected at day 14 was a total of five people. And we're still drilling into what that day 14 number means because it's a, it's a bit unusual that we would find anyone at all at day 14. So we're reanalyzing the data, and our, our October results should give us greater clarity about why we're finding people at day 14. Now, these at-home COVID tests, uh, what's their efficacy? Is it as high as the lab tests? Uh, Well, these are lab tests, and it's simply a different sampling method. Uh, We don't use healthcare workers with full PPE and the long nasal pharyngeal swab that goes into the very, very back of the nose. Uh, People test themselves, and it's a, a cheek swab followed by a lower nose swab. And the accuracy of this test is just a little bit below this, the same test done with that long uh, swab to the back of the nose, one or two points less. But by and large, the test, it's the same test. It's still, it's still a lab-based PCR or polymerase chain reaction test. So it is the best available test uh, for COVID-19 in the world today. Now, I know that the, if if memory serves me correctly, that the people that took part in this study where, you know, they're coming back from, they still had to quarantine, but they get their own personal uh, tests, COVID tests that they test on day one, they test again on seven, they test again on 14. The people that were involved in this study were volunteers. Um, My question is, who does this serve at the end of the day? You know, this, what's the goal and who will it serve? So the goal is to create evidence. All research is in the business of creating evidence. But uh, primarily the users of that evidence will be policymakers in governments, not just in Canada, but around the world. There is an immense amount of interest in this study everywhere because there there is not another one uh, like it. In the end, uh, we've tested well over 16,000 people and conducted 40,000 tests on them. So it's a very, very big group of people that we're, we're following in the study. And so policymakers are looking at things like why is quarantine 14 days? Does it need to be 14 days? You know, let's say someone comes from a country where there's uh, where there's no COVID-19 or very limited COVID-19. Should we have quarantine at all? Uh, should quarantine perhaps be reduced by using testing like this in, in place of quarantine the way there's a study going on in Calgary at the moment, which is looking at that? So, the, the study is aimed at advancing our understanding of how to manage COVID-19. We've had calls from the World Bank. We've had calls from airports around the world. All of them are interested in learning what's gone on here at, at Pearson. It's not so much 
Uh, it's, it was very interesting, Kelly. People mostly volunteered because, yes, they wanted to find out what their status was. But when we spoke with them, most of them said they really wanted to do this for Canada, for us. And that was part of the conversation you and I had the last time. And it still it, it has it has proven out to over over October to be mainly people wanting to do good for themselves and us. Well, that's good to know. I mean, it makes me uh, reaffirms my faith in in Canadians in general. But um, with a reduced quarantine, is the end goal of a reduced quarantine that we would free up resources to be used in other ways that are, you know, maybe checking in on if people are quarantining, that they could actually be used in in ways that could serve the public in, uh, you know, broader terms? The bottom line, in my opinion, is that we don't test enough in this country. We need to test on a massive scale because otherwise the economy continues to be shut down. As you know, we're facing another shutdown. Uh, the policymakers, the people who govern us, the, uh, the premier and uh, all of the folks who are making decisions about what Ontario should do have very few tools in their hands uh, to make those decisions. So you end up with Peel and Toronto and other places going into pretty aggressive shutdowns because there isn't really too much of an alternative. So what we're trying to do is suggest that if you test more, not just in airports, but everywhere else too, then if the test catches people early, like 1%, you can trace where they are and who they've come into contact with. You can isolate them and you can contain outbreaks before they become big. So the working assumption is that if you can test at very large scale across the province and eventually across the country, we should, as a country, be able to get a lot closer to a normal economy than we can right now. Right. The problem is the labs, and that's still where we're stuck. Because even your tests, uh, the take-home tests, you said they still go to labs uh, to be, um, you know, to be processed. So if we still don't have lab capacity, we're kind of stuck in this vicious circle of, of endless waiting. Well, that's a conversation perhaps for another day, uh, Kelly, because uh, <laughs> we have another company called Canada Health Labs, and uh, which we are planning to stand up massive lab capacity across the country, starting in Ontario. The government of Ontario is looking at our proposal right now, and the federal government is actively interested in helping us do that. And so, uh, yes, it's absolutely a challenge. People in the labs are working very, very hard. And e even if they work as hard as they possibly can, there just isn't enough capacity. So, I believe as an individual Canadian that we need to radically increase the amount of uh, testing that we have available to us. And along with quite a large number of colleagues in Canada Health Labs, we are looking to do exactly that. I only have about 20 seconds left with you, but is it the infrastructure or is it the trained professionals that we have to make sure are increased? It's the infrastructure. And uh, we have lots of trained professionals that we can uh, get to run the labs, but we need to build them, we need to equip them, and we need to have a really solid information technology solution and backbone to make them work. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Always a pleasure to have you here. Don't forget, we broadcast live daily between 9 and noon on 640 Toronto. Hopefully you can join us sometime. We'll talk to you later. Cheers.